We've come to the end of Life in the Mist, the study through Ecclesiastes. And today, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11 as we finish out this series, as we finish out this amazing book that King Solomon wrote through the teacher. You're going to find some amazing practical advice from uh, King Solomon and from the teacher. So far in this series, we've taken a look at King Solomon and how he wrote it and why he wrote it in the preface. We talked about the meaning of life in week two. We talked about the fact that there's a season in week three. Talked about the fact that there is a season for everything. In week four, we talked about the fact that there's a purpose and that sometimes we can get trapped by the world's significance, the world's measure of significance and not ours. And last week we talked about different pieces of wisdom from the knowledge of God. And today we end with this conclusion. And the reason why, the reason why King Solomon wrote this book in the first place, the reason the teacher had so much for us to learn. And so we'll be ending today in chapters 11 and 12. Hey, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I, I almost said um, happy 4th of July because it kind of feels like that out sometimes, doesn't it, right now? It's kind of crazy. I want to thank you guys so much for being here in the house. I want to thank you guys, those of you who are joining today online. Why don't we give it up for our online audience this morning? Thank you guys for joining in online. I'm really glad that you guys are here today and are with us in this very unusual day. We've got a lot packed today, um, but uh, we are just having this one service because we got something really special for you uh, as you leave this place or as uh, you are uh, done tuning in today. Um, I'm really glad that you're here regardless. I want you to think about the worst piece of advice you ever received in your life. Uh, undoubtedly throughout your years, whether they're uh, short or longer, uh, you've probably received some advice that proved to be uh, maybe not such good advice. I, I remember as I was heading to college, um, people kept giving an, uh, me advice and I kept thinking, well, this is just a season, like people are just giving me advice now because I'm ready to go to college. And I realized that's the way life is. People give you advice all the time. And uh, I remember one of the worst pieces of advice that I ever got was from my very first boss. Now, he was a great guy. So if he's listening, um, he was a great guy. I just want you to hear that, all right? I want to honor him. Uh, but he gave me some bad advice on my first day in my first job out of college. Now, um, I was a government pre-law major, um, which has made the last three weeks of my life really interesting and intriguing. Anyway, that's a whole nother story. Uh, but uh, I was a pre-law uh, government major, and I got a sales job out of college. All right? So not exactly in my field of study. Uh, but I got a sales job. I was selling telephone systems, and uh, it was just me and Cynthia. We were starting out. At, we were um, in South Florida, uh, starting out in South Florida. We had been married, uh, I guess, about six months or so, maybe a year, uh, when I got this first job. I'd had other jobs kind of in between that period of time, but I got my first job. I was very excited about it. And my first day on the job, I went into my boss, and my boss started asking me questions, you know, trying to figure me out, trying to figure out what motivates me because sales managers want to know what motivates you, right? And I remember he asked a question. He, had, he asked a question, um, hey, um, let me ask you a question. How, how much debt um, do you have? Well, that's an unusual question to ask a guy that's just starting out. And I'm like, well, I don't have too much. I don't know, maybe $1,000 on a credit card. And he's like, he stopped there. 
And I thought maybe I was going to get some kind of financial peace university, Dave Ramsey, good advice on how to manage my money. And he said, let me tell you something. Get that credit card out and use it all the time. Use it everywhere you go, charge it up, get into as much debt as you possibly can get into because I like a hungry salesman. Yeah, that's terrible advice. Awful advice if you're under the age of like 25. Don't do that, okay? Like even if you're over the age of 25. And he said that. He said, I like a hungry salesman. And he said, a hungry salesman is a successful salesman. And I remember even thinking at that young age, at that time in my life, there's got to be something else that would make me hungry other than debt. But he couldn't quite figure out what that was yet. And I thought, that is terrible, terrible advice. And I didn't listen to it. But I got into debt because I was a hungry person for a long period of time because I didn't sell much in those first few years. And I got to tell you, that was some of the worst advice. I know that you've probably been given advice in your life as you look back upon it. You think, man, that was terrible, terrible advice. As we come to the close of this amazing book, the teacher who's been giving us the instruction in this book this person that Solomon has designed to tell us the advice that he's telling us, as we come to the conclusion, he moves from a bit of an existential, thoughtful, a little bit pie-in-the-sky approach to his teachings, and he gets incredibly practical. As he wraps up the book, he gives us what I believe is some of the best practical advice for living life. And in some ways, as you kind of navigate this book that has these beautiful moments and these confusing moments and these moments that are, that are maybe a little bit beyond kind of what we typically think about and talk about, and that's what he's trying to do. You'll see that in a moment with an illustration that he uses. As he's doing that, you think to yourself, is this really the same person that wrote Proverbs? Because it seems like the advice keeps repeating itself. It seems like the wisdom kind of comes in, in, in these long, drawn-out stories and illustrations. And all of a sudden, as we come to the close, we get this word from the teacher that I think is great advice. And regardless of what stage of life you're in, whether you are at the end of a long career and you're heading into retirement, or maybe you're deep into retirement, or whether you're just starting out, whether you're someone who's kind of at the beginning of life and maybe you're in, in middle school or high school or heading to college, I think the advice that the teacher gives here from God's word is some of the greatest advice that we can have to kind of lay down a foundation of life. And he does it on purpose, and he does it for a reason. Now, all throughout Ecclesiastes, He's talked about the fact that we can only have a certain amount of knowledge and that life is short. In fact, that's why we're calling it life in the mist because life is an enigma. And once you kind of see that maybe you have a grasp on it, you realize you don't. Isn't that true about life? It may look like it's firm and it may look like it's concrete. When you go to grab it, you realize it's just fleeting. It's gone in a moment. I'm realizing that with my kids, that it's gone in a moment. Breaking my heart right now. My kids are, particularly my daughter, my 16-year-old is breaking my heart. She's an amazing, amazing 
godly young woman, and she's breaking my heart because she's growing up way too fast. Life is so incredibly short. And all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he said that we can only understand so much of life. And so my question to the teacher is, if I were to raise my hand in the classroom, I would say, then how, in light of the fact that life is short, that life is sometimes confusing, that we can't grasp life, that we don't understand that God is working in the background, then how do we live our lives in a way that's pleasing to God, but is also we're able to live it here on this earth. Because the Bible says that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we also have to live life down on this earth for a period of time. So how do we do that? How do we navigate that? How do we try to figure that out? And I want to begin kind of in the beginning of chapter 11, then we'll go back. I want you to take a look from the message this is a paraphrase version of the Bible that's really helpful in helping us understand. It's not an actual version. I don't use it to study, but I, I use it to help me understand. And I love how the message puts this in verse 5 of Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Check this out. Just as you'll never understand the mystery of life forming in a pregnant woman, so you'll never understand the mystery at work in all that God does. And once again, the teacher comes back to this idea that we only know certain things, that we don't know the future, that we can't get a picture of what might be to come. And since we don't know the future and we don't know what God is doing in the background, we can only trust that he's doing. How then should we live? And I think the teacher gives us at least three principles that are practical for advice and I think they're foundational for living. And I want to dive right into what the teacher says, I believe, are three principles for life. First and foremost is principle number one. And it centers around this idea of generosity. Live all of your life with generosity. Live all of your life with generosity. And some of you are thinking, now, wait a minute, isn't that kind of, in a kind, benevolent way, the same advice that your first boss gave to you, Todd? Live giving it away? Well, I think the teacher wants us to go deeper in our understanding of the word generosity. But I do believe that he's telling us that we should live life with generosity. That we should be people who are generous but what do we automatically think? In fact, if you're home and you're watching or if you're here in the, the house, um, you can answer me. It's okay to answer me. Um, like, what do you think of, what is the thing that you think of when you think of generosity? What do we automatically think of? You can say it. What do we think of when I say generosity? Money, giving, possessions. I heard someone say those three words, and that's exactly right. When we hear the word generosity, when we see that the teacher tells us that we should live lives of generosity, our automatic mindset goes to money. And I do believe that that can be the case and should be the case and is the case, but I think the teacher is trying to get us to go to a deeper place, a place of, of maybe a, a more full understanding of the idea of living in a generous way. 
And in verse 2, first of all, in verse 1, he essentially lays out this idea that a farmer in his field sows a, a lot so that he gains a lot, but he does it at exactly the right time. That he does it in a way that he um, is insured of, of having a, a rich crop. But then in verse 2, check this out. He says this, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. <laughs> God knew, didn't he? He knew about Hurricane Matthew in 2016 that devastated this island, that ruined some of your homes, caused some of you that may still be listening or watching to have to move away, turned our lives upside down, didn't it? Turned it upside down. God knew. God knew. He knew that in 2020 we would be facing a pandemic that would be ridiculous in nature, one that wasn't, um, hasn't, we've not seen in 100 years. God knew. He knew. He knew that Central America over the last few weeks would be hit by two devastating hurricanes at the end of hurricane season. With the Greek letters of the alphabet, you've got to be kidding me, right? Come on. He knew about murder wasps. <laughs> he knew that our country would be involved in this reckoning in terms of racism and the ugliness of what we've been dealing with for generations and generations and generations. And he says to us, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, wouldn't it be wise for the teacher at this point to say, store away a portion or seven or eight so that you can take care of yourself for the future? Wouldn't that make more sense, church? Wouldn't that make more sense, Christ follower? Wouldn't that make more sense, those of us who kind of are in this safe, Western, self-centered culture? Yeah, and certainly the Bible tells us that we need to save, that we need to be smart. We're going to get to that in a moment, that we need to be wise with what we have. But right here, the teacher is prompting us and pushing us and making us just enough uncomfortable to push us out of our comfort zone so that we understand that our job is not to take everything in in life, but to give it away, to generously share what we have. The Apostle Paul charges the church in Corinth and tells them if you sow sparingly you will what reap sparingly and if you sow generously you will reap generously and the teacher here is pushing us out to the edge to try to encourage us that if we are people of God, if we want to live our lives in a way that is God-honoring, that we will generously share ourselves with each other. He's not just talking about possessions here. He's also talking about ourselves. He's talking about our relationships. He's talking about 
our physical bodies. He's talking about all of it because all through Ecclesiastes, he's been talking about all of it. By the way, he's also talking about our spiritual lives, that our spiritual lives shouldn't be just lived for us. Listen, church, what he's doing is he's trying to turn this self-centered kind of Western style of Christianity on its head and push us out so that we are willing to be generous with our lives to those God brings into the intersection of our lives. Don't you know what disaster may happen on earth? Give a portion to seven or even to eight. See, good farmers are prepared to sow seeds generously when the right opportunity comes up. They're willing to take everything that they have in the storehouse and they're willing to put it in the field when the right conditions line up. They're willing to take on that risk. They're willing to prepare and they're willing to risk much to be able to gain much. And God promises us, Paul said it to the church in Corinth, he promises us, promises us that if we sow generously, we will reap generously. And listen, I want you to hear, this is not some kind of karma. That's not what this is about. That is not biblical at all. What is biblical is the idea that God has given us much, and so to whom much is given, much is required. And the teacher here wants us to not hold back in our lives. And my question to you today is what are you holding back? What part of your life are you holding back? What part of your life have you said, hey, this, this right here, this is for me. This is for me. Maybe some of you haven't been involved in a group or in Christian community or in a Bible study because you view your Bible study, you, you view your time with God, you view his word as his word to you and that your Christian life is private. I don't know how many times I've heard that. That is not how he intended for us to live. He wants us to live it generously. He wants us to share it. If you're not in a group, you're missing out. And even worse, if you're not in a group, the ones who are in the group that you would be in are missing out. Don't think about that too long. I just maybe blew your mind there. What are you holding back? Because if we're going to live lives that are pleasing to God, we're gonna live our lives generously. The second principle for living our lives, I believe that the teacher tells us here that we need to live our lives in a way that we are prepared to take action. Live prepared to take action in your life. Live prepared to take action in your life. Your life. Ecclesiastes 11, verses 4 and 6, these are kind of the bookends to where we started today. It says this He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Verse 6 says this In the morning, sow your seed, 
and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I love verse 4 because he says there, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Here's what he's trying to describe here. He's trying to describe someone who's a farmer who just is out in the fields going, it's a nice day. It's a nice day. There's no food on my family's table, but it's a nice day. I like the clouds. Look at the way they look. They look great. Look amazing. I bet there's going to be rain. Just sits back, relaxed, and observes life. And listen, as Ecclesiastes says, there's a time for everything. And there's a time for us to observe the beautiful creation of God and to give God glory for the creation, worship the creator, not the creation. There's a time for that. There's also a time for hard work. And essentially what he's saying here is the one who just sits back and looks around and observes all that's around him and never does anything, he's not going to have anything to be generous with. I remember when I was the rec coach, the rec soccer coach for Sean's three-year-old soccer team down at Chaplin Field. Have any of you ever coached three-year-olds in anything? That is a wild ride, let me tell you. First of all, my son cried for eight games straight. I coached in the middle of the field, and you, in that age, you have to get out in the field. I coached with him like this. I carried him like a football for most of the time, under my arm, going, yeah, yeah, run over there, stop crying. Run over there, stop crying. Why aren't you playing? This is my game, you're supposed to be good at this. Anyway, and he, he, he did eventually, it took some years. But anyway, so that was the first observation. The second observation, is soccer players at that age, they just stand looking up. They're like, there's a plane. Look at the plane. Coach, look at the plane. Look at the bug. Look at the bugs. Look at the ants. Look at the dirt over here. And all the time, the game is going by. Life is just going by. It's going by. And some people have the tendency to live their lives so caught up in with what's going on around them that they miss that God has given them hands to work with and a mind skilled to think with and abilities and skills to be able to put to use to be a part, productive part of this world. It says, in the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand. Don't stop working, for you know, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Sounds to me like he's saying it's okay to have a side job or two or three. The whole idea of multiple income streams, I don't know, maybe that's biblical. The problem is, is that sometimes... We kind of go in this wild pendulum swing to one of the extremes or the other. There's, there are those people who in life are careless with life. And let me mention that for a moment because I know what some of you are thinking. There, some of you are thinking, okay, this is something that like, we, have to be, we have to be thoughtful and, and careful about and we have to think through things. And that is absolutely true. But some of you are careless. When opportunity presents itself, you're far too careless. Maybe you tend to act too quickly, and sometimes you have to live with the consequences. You live life, and life is kind of a mess. There's a path behind you. 
You're impetuous, impulsive, maybe risky. Your approach to life is ready, fire, aim. Ready, fire, aim. Ready, fire, aim. And there's bullet holes everywhere. And for you, you need to remember that the gospel of Luke instructs us for those who are wanting to build a tower, you have to count the cost. And so sometimes we live in a way that is far too cautious or far too careless, but there are times and there are those of us who live in a way that is far too cautious. And when opportunity presents itself, we don't take action. We tend to not act ever or to act too late. We overanalyze. We're too cautious or safe. We have a paralysis by analysis, a perfectionism approach to things, and we never get things done. We never meet deadlines. That's me right there. <laughs> I struggle with that sometimes. Our approach to life is ready, aim, ready, aim, ready, aim again, ready, aim again, ready, aim again. Don't shoot. <laughs> Always be aiming. And I think the teacher is speaking to those who in life are paralyzed by fear. For you throughout life, you need to hear over and over again, be prepared to take action. And the reason that I summarized it with preparation to take action is because I think that's the balance. I believe that's, and the intersection, listen, don't miss this, I think that's where the intersection is between a life that is far too cautious and a life that is far too careless, is to be prepared to take action, to allow God to prepare you to take action. As Isaiah says, to fear not because he will uphold you with his righteous right hand. You can take action. You can have a certain amount of risk because you have prepared in the secret place with God. How do we prepare in the secret place with God? I think we prepare, in what ways do we do that? We prepare spiritually, we prepare relationally, we prepare emotionally, we prepare physically and financially. By the way, those five things, when I'm doing a wedding, that's what I pray over the bride and the groom, is those five things that God would bless them in those five areas. And it is not wrong at all in that secret place with God, in your closet, in your prayer time with him, to pray a prayer of blessing over those areas of your life. Because if you, God is working on those areas of your life, you will be prepared to take action when he brings it to you. Don't miss God's moment. Listen, don't miss God's moment because you are standing around observing life. A lot of you know I'm an Atlanta Falcons fan, NFL fan. Cynthia says I use too many sports illustrations in my messages. She's right about that. There's no doubt about it. But as a Falcons fan, there are two teams that I don't like at all, and it's the Saints, and they're playing them today. <laughs> and it's the Patriots. And I'm sorry, if you're a Patriots fan, I love you, but I don't like your team. <laughs> but one of the things that they have created a culture of that Bill Belichick understands is this idea of doing your job, and that was something that was imprinted all over the headquarters and the training grounds and every part 
of the New England Patriots so that the players and the coaches and everybody down to the guy that's doing accounting could see, and it's this phrase, do your job. I think we understand the spirit of what that is, even if it comes from the evil empire itself of the New England Patriots. I'm just kidding. But here's the thing, spiritually speaking, the teacher's giving us this instruction because God, listen, Christ follower, I want you to hear this. God is doing his part. He has already done his part. It is time for you to do yours. So my question to you is what opportunity might you be wasting right now where is god bringing something into your path or someone into your path or by the way some ministry into your path and you're just looking around looking at all the clouds and your life and just observing and you're missing that sweet place that god may have for you in the future and thirdly the third and last principle to live with is live life with an eternal perspective. Live life with an eternal perspective. He begins to kind of turn the corner in verse 7 of chapter 11 all the way through verse 8 of chapter 12. And he says this in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 11, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the way of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you in to judgment. Now, that is a word that is not popular today, the word judgment. It is not popular in the modern-day church. But it is the judgment of God that makes his salvation so amazing It's the unfortunate darkness of hell that makes heaven so incredibly hopeful. And so what he's saying here is is that we need to have perspective on life, that we need to realize that there is a day when we will have a reckoning, that what we do in this life matters. Listen, if you're about ready to embark out to co- onto college or if you're about ready, to, you know, if you're in high school or middle school or you're, you're young in a career, I want you to hear this because the world does not tell you this, that what you do in this life matters in the next. And without diving too much into that thought, I want you to remember that we need to live life with an eternal perspective. In verse 1 of the 12th chapter, he says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. A very familiar passage. Even if you aren't like involved in church, you probably have heard that phrase before. You probably heard it like 
uh, you know, said at a funeral, perhaps. Remember also the days, uh, your creator in the days of your youth or, or at a wedding or at, at a uh, graduation ceremony before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And then in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12, he dives in to a poetic picture of the aging process. And I want you to hear today that the reason I use the word perspective, that we need to have an eternal perspective, is because I believe that there's a balance in life, that the teacher's telling us that there's a balance in life, that sometimes we have the tendency to, be, um, to live in the past, to dwell in the past, or we have a tendency to be obsessed with the future. We're far too enamored with what our lives looked like yesterday. I find myself doing that. The older I get, the more my kids grow up, the more they're doing things that kind of trigger memories from high school. And as they're heading, you know, out of middle school and high school and heading towards college, it scares me to death, but that's okay. You can tell I'm working through this, all right? So pray for me. <laughs> um, there's some triggers that cause me to kind of dwell in, in, in yesterday. And then sometimes we obsess about the future. We're so consumed with what tomorrow holds. And, and yet the world tells us to live for the moment, to live for the now. So what in the world do we do? See, if we live life realizing that there's an eternity ahead, it changes everything. If we, Christ followers, lived our lives realizing that the moment that we asked Jesus to be our Savior, we stepped into eternity. That changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, that changes all of it. That that moment that we said yes to Jesus, that was like our birthday, the one that really matters. That's the time we stepped into eternity. If we have that, then we won't have the tendency as much to dwell in the past or obsess about the future. That we will have a clear understanding of time in light of eternity, which will help us, listen to this, which will help us to live for God in the moment, not trying to find pleasure in the moment. You see the difference? Viewing life with an eternal perspective helps us to understand that we can live in the present, taking every moment by moment as precious time, living with no regrets, because we're living that moment for Him. We're investing in our eternal future. So my question today for you is are you missing God's now moment because you're dwelling on the past or perhaps obsessing about the future my challenge to you is have that eternal perspective of life if you've stepped into salvation you've stepped into eternity and that changes everything that changes everything. It puts a whole different motivation on living in the moment. It's not living in the moment like the world tells us to do for our own pleasure. But it's living, taking every 
moment, day by day, because it's what God has given you, and you have eternity with him. And then the teacher draws this great conclusion, and we'll end here today. He draws this amazing conclusion in just a few verses, three verses, in chapter 12. He says, the words of the wise are like goads. I'm going to come back to that word in a moment. They're like goads, and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd, my son. He says, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. If you're in school right now, I wouldn't put that on a three-by-five card and put it up on your refrigerator. <laughs> Not the time. <laughs> and then he says this in verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. By the way, this is Solomon breaking the veil, coming back out, and he's speaking here. And he says this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is the whole thing. If we've gone through everything, we've tried every experience, experiment, we've had every experience, these are the observations on life, the wisdom God's given us. He sums it up by saying, fear God and keep his commandments. So what in the world is the point of the previous 12 chapters, 11 chapters. Well, he says it right there in verse 11. He says, the words of the wise are like goads. A shepherd in that day and age would have had a shepherd's staff, just like you normally think of, that if you've ever seen a nativity scene or seen the Christmas story played out, there's typically the shepherds have their staff and it's got a hook on it. But the reality is in that day and age, the end of the hook was a little another little hook or a sharp edge, or an edge that would have looked like a bit of a serrated piece of wood. And a shepherd would have used that as a way to, I want you to hear this word, to provoke the sheep to move on in life. And that's what Ecclesiastes is all about. It's to provoke our mind, to provoke our will, and to provoke our emotion, and to provoke our soul to turn our eyes to him. And yes, to live life with gratitude, to live life taking action, and to live life with perspective in mind. But essentially, to honor God's plan and follow God's path. That's it. If we were to take that one statement, honor God's plan, and follow God's path and apply it to every area of our life, we will find meaning, his meaning. We will find reason, his reason. We will find success, the success that he desires for us. I want to encourage you on this Sunday of Thanksgiving to take a deeper look at this. We've got the Roots Guide that's available on every Wednesday at hiltonheadislandcc.org slash roots, you can find out more about this and study more, but I want to challenge you today, regardless of where you are in life, whatever stage of life you are, to honor God's plan and follow God's path.
path. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you that you inspired King Solomon, this man who had tremendous ups and downs in his life, tremendous successes and failures, great experience, great wisdom, wealth. Thank you for inspiring him to write this book. And at the end of the day, Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to honor your plan and to follow your path. God, may we not take lightly the words that you've given us in your word, the truth of your inspired word. The Bible says it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And yet it sits collecting dust on the shelf. God, inspire us even today to take a hold of that word that you've given us that can help us navigate the mist of life and the times when life is a fog and times when we're right in the midst of those clouds. God, help us, help us to take seriously your words, to live our lives with generosity not just with money, not just financially, but in every area of our lives. Viewing ourselves as not the type of people who have to gain and gain and gain and gain and keep and keep and keep and keep, but the type of people that give because you gave up your life for us. Help us, Father, to live our lives taking action, not on our own strength, not in our own power, but when you call us to, when you allow the right conditions to occur. Help us, Father, to be prepared to take action. And help us, Father God, to live life with an eternal perspective, realizing that we don't have to live for the now, that life is so much more than that, but we should take every bit of life in the moment you've given us and be present in the moment that you've given us, because you're the one who gave it to us. Help us, Father God, to live life pleasing you. When we fail, when we're weak, I pray that you would help us to do that. When we're struggling, I pray that you would help us to do that. Father, help us in our time of need to do everything that we can to follow you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.